2013, the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM-5, was released. For the first time in the history of the DSM, it included a proposed diagnosis of non-suicidal self-injury disorder, or NSSI disorder, under Section 3 as a condition for further study. To be clear, it's not a current formal diagnosis, but a proposed one. Until the DSM-5, the only mention of self-injury in the DSM was under the diagnosis of Borderline Personality Disorder, or BPD, where it referenced NSSI as, quote, self-mutilating behavior, a term we no longer use in the field. So why hasn't or why didn't NSSI disorder become a formal diagnosis? Just what are the currently proposed criteria for a new NSSI disorder, and are these criteria even supported by research? If made a formal diagnosis, where would or should it be categorized in the DSM? Under depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, obsessive-compulsive and related disorders, disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders, or some other category of disorders? What are some of the potential positive and negative consequences of formalizing it as a disorder? To answer these questions and to break down in detail what research says about each of the six criteria of the proposed NSSI disorder diagnosis, I am joined today from Drake University in Iowa by Dr. Greg Langle. Welcome to Season 4 of the Psychology of Self-Injury Podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply ISSS. You probably remember Dr. Lengel from last month's episode with Dr. Brooke Ammerman on the topic, How Should Self-Harm Be Defined? Even though we recorded today's episode first, we wanted to release today's episode after last month's episode because we wanted listeners to first hear about the issues surrounding the definition of NSSI, which you'll see is foundational for today's conversation. Dr. Lengel is a member of the IS NSSI Disorder Workgroup and has published a number of papers on NSSI disorder as a proposed diagnosis for further study in the DSM, and I've included a long list of his and other publications in the episode notes for those super interested in the topic. He's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Drake University and also a licensed psychologist and health service provider in Iowa. He served as secretary on the IS Executive Board from 2018 to 2021 and his research focuses on exploring NSSI and other personality-related maladaptive behaviors, as well as the clinical applications of dimensional personality traits. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lengel. It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Jumping right into things, how did you become interested in researching self-injury, especially in relation to self-injury as a potential diagnosis in the DSM? Yeah, well, I didn't initially set out to become an NSSI researcher. When I started my doctoral training, I was primarily interested in personality disorders and in particular, dimensional approaches to understanding personality pathology. But the lab I was working in during my doctoral training also was examining personality-related maladaptive behaviors, of which NSSI is one of those. And I had some interest in NSSI in general, but I didn't necessarily see it as a focal point of my research. And the first project I happened to be invited to take part in once starting graduate school um, happened to research the role of general personality traits in non-suicidal self-injury. 
And like what often happens in research, one project inspires another idea, inspires another project, which then in turn inspires another project. And before I knew it, it became kind of a cornerstone of my research. In regard to non-suicidal self-injury disorder, I would describe that as an intersection between this emerging interest in non-suicidal self-injury as well as timing. When I began doing NSSI research, it was shortly after the DSM-5 revision proposals were published on dsm5.org. And as you can imagine, the lab I was working in was very interested in the proposed changes to the personality disorder section. So we were spending a lot of time investigating that. But also, as we started researching NSSI more and more, our attention was drawn towards this proposed NSSI disorder. We decided to start to investigate that. So Dr. Mullen Sweet and I put together a study where we surveyed NSSI clinicians and researchers on their opinions relating to these proposed diagnostic criteria, particularly how they describe someone who prototypically engages in NSSI at a clinical level. And then from there, it was really ISSS that furthered my interest in the topic. I can't remember the exact year, but I joined an ISSS work group that was aimed at exploring potential NSSI disorder revisions to potentially put together in a proposal to send to APA for potential revisions to the NSSI disorder criteria. And that work really forced me to look very closely at NSSI disorder, really go through each of the criteria with a fine-tooth comb, look at the empirical evidence for the disorder, look at the empirical evidence for each of the criteria. And between the discussions within that work group, the work we did in that work group, as well as discussions at IS conferences, this really piqued my interest and inspired several different research ideas. Thankfully, it also seems to have done so for others as well, which then led to multiple research collaborations with Drs. Brooke Ammerman and Jason Washburn, where together we've looked at NSSI disorder, both from the perspective of professionals as well as with individuals with lived experience. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can you talk about why NSSI is being proposed as a diagnosis to begin with? Yeah, just to provide some brief historical context, the idea of a standalone NSSI syndrome or disorder is not new. Conceptualizations of an NSSI syndrome or a syndrome that relates to what we now consider NSSI dates back to the 1960s and even in the 70s. There are some more formal proposals or conceptualizations in the 80s and 90s. And then in the 2000s, Research in NSSI increased significantly and exponentially. This led to a great interest in the topic and kind of renewed interest in NSSI as a standalone disorder. In 2005, Jennifer Muhlenkamp published a very influential paper that proposed a deliberate self-injury syndrome, which was something that in part influenced Schaefer and Jacobson's 2009 proposal that eventually went to the DSM childhood disorder and depressive disorder work groups as a potential disorder to be included in DSM. As far as the rationale for why we would want to potentially consider an NSSI disorder, I think the biggest reason often cited is that at the present, there is very limited and inappropriate representation of NSSI in the DSM. Right now, the only place where DSM is 
represented is within the criteria of borderline personality disorder, specifically criterion 5 of BPD, which states recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, or thoughts, or self-mutilating behavior. There's a number of issues with this. One is that this can lead to the conflation of NSSI with BPD, that people assume that if someone engages in NSSI, that means they have borderline personality disorder, which research is very clear that NSSI occurs outside of borderline personality disorder. It occurs with several other disorders, including other personality disorders, eating disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, trauma and stressor disorders, substance use disorders, and even in the absence of psychopathology. It also leads people to believe that if everyone with BPD potentially is engaging in non-suicidal self-injury, which is also not accurate. Beyond just that issue, if you look at the wording of that criterion, there's some problems there. So first, it kind of lumps self-injury in with suicidal self-injury as well as suicidal ideation, and also uses the term self-mutilating behavior, which is not a term that we presently use or is recommended to be used when describing NSSI. You may note, too, that it doesn't specify non-suicidal self-injury when it's referring to self-mutilating behavior. And so there's a number of issues just with that criterion. And overall, by having NSSI connected to borderline personality disorder, it just leads to a number of potential problems. And by having a standalone NSSI disorder, this might help people be more aware that NSSI occurs outside of borderline personality disorder. It can also potentially reduce clinician bias and have clinicians think of other alternative explanations for the behavior instead of automatically jumping to borderline personality disorder. So beyond BPD, another rationale for having an NSSI disorder would be to differentiate it from suicidal self-injury, as well as from self-injury that can occur in other syndromes, such as excoriation, trichotillomania, and self-harm and developmental disabilities. An NSSI disorder could potentially operationally define NSSI and, and clarify what NSSI is, allowing for more consistent research and um, consistent definitions throughout research so we can be able to generalize research. Because right now, not to go too deep into this topic now, but there's been several labels and definitions of NSSI throughout history. And when people are talking about NSSI, they may not be referring to the same thing. There's not necessarily universal agreement on which behaviors are and are not considered NSSI. So having a diagnosis may help provide an operational definition and clarify what we mean by NSSI, which can help with generalizability of research. It can also aid in communication as we talk amongst different professions on the topics. So again, we're all speaking the same language. This can help with treatment as well as clear up misperceptions. And hopefully an NSSI disorder can help inspire more research as well as treatment development and development of more assessment measures and potentially increase access to care. Another aspect of the a disorder, uh, particularly from the perspective of individuals with lived experience, there's the potential that an NSSI disorder could potentially reduce stigma or provide a sense of validation. Other reasons why we may consider a standalone disorder for NSSI is that it does meet many of the features that we see with other syndromes in the DSM. And so it is fairly prevalent or common. It has clear functional impairment. It's associated 
with a kind of prominent symptom pattern and presentation of biological and associated features, such as age of onset, course, and so on. And it's very distinctive. It has a distinctive behavioral pattern to it. And so it does kind of fit within what we would consider to be potentially a diagnosis. Yeah, and having a common framework or common diagnostic criteria that we can actually use in research that everyone's using the same. So it's not different definitions of what NSSI is and not having research consistently use the same definition can cause problems in not only diagnosis, but treatment. Yes, exactly. It's interesting that you mentioned borderline personality disorder, where for those listening, there are nine criteria in the DSM for borderline personality disorder. For whatever reason, when someone endorses criterion number five, which you have to have at least five of the nine criteria Mm -hmm. consistently for a couple of years, at least as an adult for the diagnosis, even if that's the only criterion that someone endorses, I often still see, not as much as I did even five years ago, but I still see the person diagnosing will call like, oh, cluster B personality traits, borderline personality traits. That's just like, you don't do that for the other nine criteria. Why is it just this one criteria and suddenly they endorse this and they they have features of borderline personality disorder, which really in my mind reflects stigma on the part of the diagnostician or the provider, the psychiatrist. Exactly. It's potential stigma or at least clinician bias. You know, there's a lot of consequences that come with the status quo or that misdiagnosis there where this could potentially lead to overly restrictive or inappropriate care. So for example, if we're misinterpreting NSSI as borderline personality disorder, that's going to affect the way that a clinician may approach that in treatment. Or if we're conceptualizing NSSI as suicidal self-injury. This can lead to emergency evaluations, inpatient care that may be unnecessary for the individual. If made a formal diagnosis in the DSM, where would or should it be categorized? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I don't know if there's a perfect answer for it. So Schaefer and Jacobson, in their proposal for an NSSI disorder, that proposal was to the DSM-5 Childhood Disorder and Mood Disorder Workgroups. And when it was initially published on the DSM-5.org webpage, it was housed under disorders usually first diagnosed in infancy, childhood, or adolescence, or what is now essentially our neurodevelopmental disorders. And this makes sense to some degree that The behavior often onsets in adolescence, for example. And just because a disorder is first diagnosed in infancy, child, or adolescent doesn't mean that this can't be a disorder that can also occur in adulthood. However, if something is housed in that category, that may lead people to falsely assume that this is a disorder that only occurs in childhood or is a childhood disorder, and perhaps overlook NSSI disorder if the NSSI first onsets in adulthood. Other previous proposals for a self-injury disorder, a non-suicidal self-injury disorder, considered it an impulse control disorder. So for example, Favaza's recommendation for a repetitive self-mutilation disorder in the 90s kind of put it in this area. And this also makes some sense that NSSI is often preceded by feelings of tension or negative affect, and the behavior often accomplishes a sense of relief or gratification following it, which is not unlike other disorders that are housed in this category. But just know that affect 
regulation is just one of many functions. And so this could be a biased or incomplete conceptualization of the disorder if it was placed here. Also, there's potential concern with stigma, with the disorder being housed alongside oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder. It was interesting that when Brooke Ammerman, Jason Washburn, and I investigated this, we surveyed clinicians and researchers who have experience either studying or treating NSSI, and we asked them a number of questions related to NSSI disorder. And one of the things we asked them to do was to rank order potential placements for which category NSSI disorder should go. And the most endorsed and the placement that received the most first choice rankings was the disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders. Beyond that, there's other potential landing spots for this disorder. Some have proposed depressive disorders. Others said, let's put it, the personality disorders, neurodevelopmental disorders, impulse control disorders, addictive disorders. This is not uncommon with categorical diagnosis. It's just kind of inherent with categorical diagnosis is that sometimes there's not going to be a perfect place for everything. Not everything neatly fits into a box. Another potential idea is if NSSI doesn't officially become a diagnosis, and and there's many who would argue that it doesn't warrant its own standalone diagnosis, that many consider it a symptom of other psychopathology as opposed to a standalone condition. So seeing it as a transdiagnostic behavior, another potential idea would be to include a specifier that's transdiagnostic in that if someone was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, for example, you can have a specifier with non-suicidal self-injury. To some degree, it would help certainly in solving the issue of inclusion of NSSI in the DSM. It would give a representation of NSSI outside of borderline personality disorder. But one potential concern with this would be that it would require another diagnosis. And so what about individuals who may not meet criteria for another diagnosis, but also engage in clinical levels of non-suicidal self-injury? What's interesting is with the recent publication of DSM-5-TR, or the text revision to DSM-5, they added codes to the section of other conditions that may be a focus of clinical attention for both current NSSI as well as history of NSSI. And it's important to note that problems in this section do not represent mental disorders, but factors that can affect a diagnosis or course or prognosis or care of a disorder. These codes would be used to accompany a DSM-5 diagnosis, or they specify these codes can be recorded even in the absence of a DSM-5 diagnosis. And the wording of these codes kind of mirrors some of the language in the proposed DSM-5 NSSI disorder proposal. That's really interesting. I probably should have clarified for listeners the different diagnoses in the DSM. There are different categories, including impulse control disorders or personality disorders, depressive disorders. So those would be different categories. And so the challenge is where do we put that? And then even each diagnosis can have a specific specifier. I believe I participated in that study that you guys did and asking the clinicians. I'm pretty sure. Well, well, thank you. We appreciate it. So we've talked all about NSSI disorder being a diagnosis potentially in the DSM and why that is the case in the history, but we haven't even mentioned yet the actual criteria. So there are six criteria. Dr. Lingo, would you be able to walk us through the criteria for the proposed NSSI disorder? And then we're going to tackle some of the research behind each of those six criteria. Sure. 
So as you mentioned, there are six criteria. So we have criteria A, B, C, D, E, and F. We'll start with criterion A. Criterion A, if I were to summarize it, this has a few components to it. It in part defines the behavior, defines which behaviors would be considered NSSI. It also includes the time frame in which we're looking at the behavior, as well as the frequency threshold. And so this criterion states in the last year, the individual has on five or more days engaged in intentional self-inflicted damage to the surface of their body of a sort likely to induce bleeding, bruising, or pain such as cutting, burning, stabbing, hitting, excessive rubbing, with the expectation that the injury will lead to only minor or moderate physical harm, meaning there's no suicidal intent. Criterion B, this is a criterion that is looking, I would say, at functions. And so this criterion states, the individual engages in the self-injurious behavior with one or more of the following expectations. One, to obtain relief from a negative feeling or cognitive state. Two, to resolve an interpersonal difficulty. And three, to induce a positive feeling state. Then criterion C, this includes, I would say, associated features with the behaviors. It states the intentional self-injury is associated with at least one of the following. Interpersonal difficulties or negative feelings or thoughts, such as depression, anxiety, tension, anger, generalized distress, or self-criticism occurring in the period immediately prior to the self-injurious act. Number two, prior to engaging in the act, a period of preoccupation with the intended behavior that is difficult to control. And three, thinking about self-injury that occurs frequently even when it is not acted upon. And so an individual would need to have at least one of those associated features of those three. Criterion D, this is a criterion that aims at ruling out socially sanctioned self-injurious behavior. So things like body piercing, tattooing, injury that's part of a religious or cultural ritual, and also specifies that the injury is not restricted to picking a scab or nail biting. Criterion E is getting at distress and impairment, and so the behavior or its consequences cause clinically significant distress or interference in interpersonal, academic, or other important areas of functioning. And then criterion F, this is looking at a number of rule-outs. This criterion rules out self-injury that occurs exclusively during psychotic episodes, delirium, substance intoxication, substance withdrawal also differentiates NSSI that would meet criteria for this disorder from other symptoms or syndromes such as psychotic disorder, autism spectrum disorder, intellectual disability, trichotillomania, and so on. Which is interesting because we recently did an episode on self-injury in individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities where on the Spotify podcasting app, we're able to interact with listeners. So I've mentioned that before. And I will sometimes put questions. I try to put questions on every single episode, but I try to do polls. And one of the polls I asked was, should NSSI be separate from self-injurious behaviors or SIB, such as those in intellectual and developmental disabilities? And people can go into the Spotify app and look at the results. I don't think we had too many votes. Most listeners think that they should be separated and researched separately. That would fall within Criterion F. Yes. But Criterion A has had the most research and has the most deliberations about, is this a good criterion? Is this a good distinguisher for an NSSI disorder? Can you talk about some of that research? For sure. 
Criterion A, as you mentioned, is probably one of the most, if not the most, investigated and debated of the criteria. There's some concerns with the validity and utility of the criterion as written. Part of that is the definitional debate, which again, won't get too deep here this episode, but just there isn't unanimous agreement on which behavior should be considered NSSI. And so that's one thing that needs to be further clarified before officially adopting this as an official diagnosis is that we need to really identify which behaviors should or should not count towards this diagnosis. Beyond that, probably what's received more attention is just discussion and debate about the time frame and frequency that's listed in this criterion. So as I mentioned, this criterion is looking at a past 12 months or past year time frame, which if you think about it, that's a long time. That is a long time period of time, especially when we're factoring in five or more days is what is the threshold for meeting this criterion. And so if you think just retroactively thinking back 12 months is very difficult to do. It's it's very challenging to even think back accurately just what our behaviors were just a few weeks ago. Like if you were to ask, what did you eat lunch for three and a half weeks ago? Many of us would have a hard time doing that accurately. And so one concern is just the time frame in being able to accurately report the number of days or number of behaviors that have occurred. But also with the time frame being that long, at what point does it stop being clinically useful? For example, someone can technically, let's say in January, injure on five days and then not self-injure for another six months, eight months, 10 months, and now we're here in November, and they can still technically meet this criterion. And if it's not a more recent prevalent behavior, that can be, I guess it can doubt its clinical usefulness, really. Beyond that, studies have suggested that a shorter time frame would be more clinically useful. Several people have investigated that. Brooke Ammerman, Jason Washburn, and I have also looked at this as well. And we found that a past month tends to be the most endorsed as being the most clinically useful or helpful, or one to three month time frame would be more clinically useful or helpful. And our work is in line with other work that suggests that past month behavior may improve the ability for the criterion to be more effective as a diagnostic indicator. Beyond the 12 month time frame, the issue of specifying days versus acts or episodes has come up as well. So the DSM-5 NSSI disorder proposed criteria uses days as the thing that we're going to count as opposed to acts or episodes, which this has a lot of benefits. So for example, using days can reduce variation in the definitions of NSSI acts or episodes. So for instance, what if an individual engages in two NSSI behaviors 10 minutes apart. Is that one or two acts? If it's two, well, then that may artificially inflate the frequency. If it's one, it may deflate the frequency count. It's never quite clear what constitutes an act or an episode. Where days kind of takes that away. Where days, it's just very simple on how many days as opposed to how many acts. And this can also help with reducing recall bias in that it's much easier to accurately recall the number of days in which a behavior occurred as opposed to the number of times a behavior occurred, especially as we get into higher frequency counts. 
However, there are some downsides to this that first, this is probably not as big of an issue, but many of the prevalent and popular screening tools that we use for NSSI use frequency of acts or episodes, not days. Now, this problem is easily solved that if this became the official diagnosis and the official diagnostic criteria, I'm confident that new measures would be developed or measures would be refined to include days as something we'd be assessing. But more importantly, days may fail to capture true behavioral severity. So for example, someone who engages in an isolated act of NSSI over five days in the past year would meet this criterion. However, someone who self-injures 100 times over four days wouldn't. The other aspect of this criterion that has been investigated has been the cutoff or the threshold of five or more days. This was initially established with the rationale that certainly more than one episode should be required for a diagnosis. We don't want to give someone a disorder, diagnose someone with a disorder for engaging in the behavior just one time. But beyond that, the idea was that the threshold should be somewhat conservative, that it shouldn't be too high of a threshold. And this has been looked at empirically, and there's some evidence that five or more instances of NSSI would be indicative of a a syndrome, but the empirical support has been somewhat equivocal on that front. A lot of studies have suggested that a higher threshold is needed, that a higher threshold does a better job at differentiating, I guess for lack of a better term, clinically significant NSSI from sub-threshold NSSI. So some studies have suggested six or more acts or 10 or more acts. Um, And across several studies, researchers have variously concluded that the frequency of NSSI behavior should increase anywhere from six or more acts of NSSI to 30 or more days of NSSI in the past year, and that would help it be more clinically useful. This is an area, too, where perhaps a dimensional approach or adding some dimensionality could be potentially helpful. So adding a scale of severity or looking at it as having separate subgroups of maybe high frequency, moderate frequency, low frequency based on the number of days that the individual engages in NSSI or number of acts or episodes that someone engages in NSSI. This might be helpful from a clinical utility perspective at getting a sense of the severity of the behavior. But what other studies have shown or studies have shown is that those who meet criteria for this disorder tend to report higher frequencies. And so with all of this together, it seems like a higher frequency threshold could be warranted here and it might be necessary. One of the issues with a low threshold is that it could potentially over-pathologize those who engage in NSSI infrequently, which is something we want to avoid. And what's also interesting when looking at this, if you compare it to other disorders involving maladaptive behavior, so if you compare NSSI disorder and its diagnostic thresholds to other disorders involving maladaptive behavior, so bulimia nervosa, for example, bulimia nervosa states that the binge eating and inappropriate compensatory behaviors both occur on average at least once a week for three months. And so in that case, we're looking at a three-month time frame and a frequency of at least once per week and compare that to the proposed NSSI disorder criteria of five or more days in the past year, where technically someone can meet this criterion while engaging in NSSI at a rate of less than one behavior every two months. 
And I think you and Drs. Brooke Ammerman and Jason Washburn suggested that maybe four more days in the past month could enhance the clinical utility of Criterion A? Yeah. So when we surveyed NSSI clinicians and researchers, we asked them about the timeframe required for NSSI behavior for clinical considerations, as well as the time frame for diagnosis consideration. And from that, the data show that perhaps revising the criteria to require four days per month of NSSI using at a minimum one month time frame or at a maximum three month time frame with 12 total days of NSSI might be more clinically useful. Another survey that I think I may have participated in, I can't remember, but I suppose that could also be then NSSI in remission, because if someone meets diagnosis in a given month, four more episodes in a month, then if they engage in only three, the next month, they would no longer meet NSSI disorder. And that's an interesting idea when it comes to potential specifiers for an NSSI disorder. So an NSSI, kind of going along with what is currently in DSM-5-TR of a past NSSI behavior code, perhaps if this diagnosis is officially adopted, having a specifier for something like in remission. There's been other potential specifiers that we've looked at, such as having a specifier for urges, the egosyntonic nature of it, so it being egosyntonic, or NSSI disorder with suicidal ideation or attempts, or it providing an analgesic effect, that this could be potentially helpful specifiers that we would may want to include. I think that something like in remission could potentially be helpful as well. Very fascinating. I think that's why you know Criterion A gets the most debate and research because it's just really interesting. There's so many angles to take to look at it. And I know criteria B and C have a little bit less disagreement or conflict. Can you share a little bit about those criteria? Sure. So criterion B, again, this is looking at functions. And probably the main critique of this criterion is that it has very limited utility in differentiating clinically significant NSSI. For example, studies have shown that few endorse zero functions, that few people endorse engaging in the behavior with no function whatsoever. And when they've looked at this empirically across multiple studies, high percentages of samples endorse this criterion. And so some studies have shown, you know, upwards from upper 80s to 99% of those with lifetime history meet criterion B. So it may not adequately differentiate between clinically significant and subthreshold NSSI. And so it doesn't really add incremental validity to the diagnostic criteria. It might be useful at specifying a function or an expectation of the behavior. It doesn't necessarily do a good job at identifying who actually meets criteria for this disorder. Also, in, in this criterion, there's only three what they call expectations or functions listed. So obtaining relief from negative feeling or cognitive state, resolving an interpersonal difficulty, or to induce a positive feeling state when we know that there are several NSSI functions that have been identified. A potential idea that has been recommended is to revise this criterion to specify a minimum number of functions as opposed to just having one function. 
And that might increase the clinical utility of the criterions because research has indicated that individuals who meet the currently proposed criterion A endorse a greater number of NSSI functions more broadly. Another potential idea of what to do with this criterion, so for example, Washburn and colleagues argued that criterion B is superfluous with criterion C, and perhaps those could be combined for a more parsimonious criterion, which is interestingly more along the lines of how the initial proposed criteria were in Schaefer and Jacobson's 2009 proposal before they were officially published in the Section 3 of DSM-5. We'll be sure to link to some of those in the episode notes for people that really want to get into the the nitty gritty there. But yeah, so criterion B is not really all that useful. What about criterion C? Yes, kind of the same story. Like criterion B, many people will meet this criterion. So again, criterion C is saying the intentional self-injury is associated with at least one of the following interpersonal difficulties or negative feelings prior to engaging in the act, a period of preoccupation or thinking of self-injury that occurs frequently, even when not acted upon. Um, And this is another one where when people have looked at various samples that a high percentage of the sample endorses criterion C, even for those who don't meet the overall NSSI disorder criteria. And so again, this gets at is this criterion actually necessary? Some have argued that criteria B and C may be removed from the NSSI disorder diagnostic criteria altogether without really reducing the diagnostic utility of it. Makes sense. Makes sense. I think one of those studies said 100% of people who engaged in self-injury reported criterion C1, which is the interpersonal difficulties or negative feelings or thoughts occurring immediately prior to the self-injury, like in one study, it was 100% of people. (laughs) So that didn't really differentiate those who might meet a threshold level of a diagnosis. What about the, the other three criteria, D, E, and F? Sure. So criterion D, which is looking at ruling out behavior that is socially sanctioned, such as, again, body piercing, tattooing, and so on. This one's kind of interesting in that it's widely recognized that it's critical to avoid pathologizing socially sanctioned behaviors that involve self-injury. So for example, we don't just want to consider ear piercing, for example, even though it is the destruction of bodily tissue or the intentional destruction of bodily tissue, it is a socially sanctioned behavior. So it makes sense to have this criterion. What's interesting is that There is some debate and disagreement about this, but the literature does show examples where individuals may use socially sanctioned behaviors as a form of NSSI. So using those behaviors for a function that is beyond what is socially sanctioned. So for example, engaging in tattooing specifically for the purposes of causing pain or harm or ear piercing for that matter as well. Now, again, there's definitional debates here when it comes to is this NSSI or not? Would this be something like NSSI by proxy or something else? Again, that's a a discussion for another day. But there is pretty wide agreement that this criterion makes sense. But also, again, noting that sometimes some of these socially sanctioned behaviors, some would argue, might be able to be used for the purposes of NSSI. Another concern with this criterion is that just like criteria B and C, 
This is another one that has very high endorsement. Again, like a few studies have found anywhere between 91 or 99% of those who engage in NSSI meet this criterion. So it, it's, again, not doing the best as far as differentiating individuals who we would consider to have NSSI disorder and those individuals who engage in NSSI who maybe wouldn't meet criteria for a disorder. And when it comes to clinical utility, that that's a major issue because ultimately, as the DSM states, the ultimate goal of the diagnostic manual is to be clinically useful. And so if it's not clinically useful, it really defeats the purpose. I think with criterion D, part of that is already encapsulated within the definition of NSSI itself. Yes. So do we need a, another criterion to say what we already say by definition? Yes. And the same has been said about the other component of this criterion of it not being restricted to picking a scab or nail biting, that that is already captured in the proposed criteria A and F, that those criteria would prevent such individuals from meeting the overall diagnostic criteria. On that note as well, studies have shown that very few people engage in only those what they would consider common or trivial self-injurious behaviors. And then for criterion E, this is looking at the behavior or its consequences causing clinically significant distress or interference in interpersonal or academic or other important areas of functioning. This is very similar to a criterion that's in almost every DSM diagnosis, a criterion that states, you know, it causes clinically significant distress or impairment. What's interesting about it for NSSI is that this can be something that's fairly difficult to assess. So first, there's not a universally agreed upon measure of distress or impairment due to one's NSSI that is very solid in the literature. But more importantly, this can also be very difficult to determine. Note that NSSI often functions to improve mood or to reduce distress, and it also, for many people, can have an egocentric quality to it. And so often what can happen is that individuals who engage in self-injury may report that these behaviors are helpful rather than distressing or impairing, which can be quite challenging when we're trying to assess this or include this as part of the diagnostic criteria. Beyond that, this is another area where dimensionalization might be helpful. So having one or more severity dimensions that can be explored. So one thing that some have noted is that, for instance, medical severity is not addressed anywhere in these criteria, and particularly in this criterion. So, you know, that the injury led to requiring medical attention, for example, that, you know, having some sort of dimensionality or some way to designate different levels of severity might help tap into better understanding distress or impairment. And then criterion F, this is another criterion that mirrors what we see in a lot of other disorders of just ruling out other psychopathology or other behaviors in order to accurately diagnose this particular disorder. Our research supports that most people agree that this is a good criterion, that not a lot of people have a problem with this criterion. Makes sense. And going back to your comment about being egocentric, that's kind of a psychobabble kind of term that we use to basically say that it's consistent with how someone views themselves and it's not as distressing as something that would be egodystonic. 
would be. And so criterion E talks about self-injury causing clinically significant distress or interfering with a functioning. So people with lived experience, I know you're doing some research with them, and they have a lot to say. I always like to give priority to hearing their voices and their stories on this podcast, and I know a lot of people appreciate that for many reasons. But I would love to hear from your research and talking to people with lived experience of self-injury, what they're saying, what are some of the potential positive and negative consequences of creating a formal NSSI disorder in the DSM? Yeah, I can speak in terms of both the potential positives and negatives of the inclusion of an NSSI disorder. I think both from the perspective of individuals with lived experience, as well as just more in general, We've already kind of hinted at a number of these already. First, some of the positives of a potential NSSI disorder would be, as I mentioned before, could potentially operationally define the construct of NSSI. It can lead to more accurate and inclusive representation of NSSI in the DSM. It can help us differentiate NSSI from borderline personality disorder and other disorders and syndromes and behaviors can inspire research and improve research. It can also advance assessment and intervention efforts, all of those things that we've mentioned before. From the perspective of individuals with lived experience, research that has looked at that has suggested a number of things. So for example, um, Stephen Lewis and colleagues looked at this question and surveyed individuals with lived experience on their thoughts and opinions about the potential impact of an NSSI disorder And they found that some of the advantages would be it can provide an enhanced understanding of non-suicidal self-injury, validation of the NSSI experience, could help facilitate NSSI treatment, help inspire and encourage help-seeking behavior, and ultimately help reduce stigma. The research that Drs. Ammerman and Washburn and I have done that's kind of similar, we've also surveyed individuals with lived experience on their opinions about what would it mean if this were officially adopted as a diagnosis? And also, what would it mean if you were diagnosed with this? We saw fairly similar responses in that there was a lot of hope that this would improve treatment efforts, that this can help provide a sense of validation, that it would help individuals better understand themselves and their behaviors, also can help provide professional understanding and reduce stigma, improve access to care, and so on. And so we're, we're still digging through those data and identifying some of the themes. And so this is kind of preliminary, but yeah, a lot of potential positive benefits from the perspectives of individuals with lived experience. On the potential downsides of an NSSI disorder, I think in general, some have argued that this is a diagnosis that could potentially contribute to diagnostic bloat or overpathologizing. There's always going to be critics that are saying the DSM is ever expanding and we're almost creating a disorder out of anything these days, is what I often hear. And, you know, and, and there's some truth to the fact that the DSM has expanded quite a bit since its first edition. And so that's something we always need to be aware of and that we don't just want to add things to the DSM unless there is a need and it's a valid diagnosis. And so some have argued on that note that this isn't a disorder, that NSSI doesn't stand alone as its own diagnostic construct. And if that's the case, then that could lead to misdiagnosis or misunderstanding of the underlying concern if we had an NSSI disorder and it didn't need to actually be there. 
from the perspective of individuals with lived experience, again, going back to Dr. Lewis and his colleagues' research, some of the concerns were a potential for stigma. So while there's the potential that this could reduce stigma, some had concerns that this could increase stigma or could lead to a diminishment of underlying concerns. And our research also kind of mirrored that a bit where some of our preliminary findings is that some had concerns with stigma or that it would lead to more of a negative self-perception if they had this diagnosis. So there are both potential positives and potential negatives that can come with this diagnosis. I think one potential pitfall that I have seen as a possible negative consequence that I don't know has been considered by too many to date has been the possibility of invalidation of those who don't meet those threshold criteria. For instance, I've heard cases where an individual says, well, one, like, how much do I have to hurt myself to be taken seriously? And relatedly, how much do I have to hurt myself to receive a diagnosis so I can get the treatment that I need? Because they may have been turned away, for example, in the emergency departments or their primary care physician or a psychologist, perhaps psychiatrist, where they have said inadvertently that the provider, the evaluator, inadvertently causing a lot of invalidation by telling the parent, oh, it's nothing to be worried about. I've seen worse. Flippant comments like that that are not intended to cause harm, but are really invalidating and hurtful. And so the person then says like, well, what do I have to do more? I have to do more severe to get the help that I need. And so I have seen that in the Oxford Handbook of NSSI, I had the privilege of authoring a couple of chapters, one of which I invited Brittany Tinsley to co-author with me. For those that are listening, we have two episodes where she shared one on navigating doctor's visits for those who lived experience of self-injury and talking about wounds and scars, as well as a separate episode on her own lived experience of self-injury. And so I invited her to co-author this chapter, and we talked about this where physicians, medical providers, and just really psychotherapists and mental health professionals need to be really cautious on invalidating even mild episodes or infrequent NSSI. Exactly. I definitely agree with that. And that is something we need to keep in mind when it comes to considering this as a official diagnosis. And even when looking at the diagnostic criteria and setting thresholds, and also just the language that we use when we're speaking about self-injury. So at the end of the day, this is still a proposed diagnosis. Why has it not yet become a diagnosis or a disorder? Yeah, so there's a number of concerns that arose. I think the biggest reason why it hasn't become an official diagnosis is that one of the things that goes into the process of diagnostic revisions or officially adopting a new diagnosis is that whenever they're proposing changes to the DSM, that those proposed changes go through field trials. And it looks at reliability, validity, and all of that. One of the problems with NSSI disorder was that the field trials did not go that well. That there was overall just poor inter-rater reliability, but also some have argued that these field trials were somewhat doomed to fail, that there's many problems with how they were conducted, that the sites that were utilized were restricted to child and adolescent sites, and multiple sites failed to obtain adequate sample sizes. And so overall, there just wasn't enough support 
for the diagnosis in the field trials. And so it was decided to place NSSI disorder into section three of the DSM, which is a place where they include conditions that require a bit further study. Additionally, if we look at beyond just why it hasn't become a diagnosis and kind of looking at some of the reasons why some would argue against an NSSI diagnosis. As I said before, some have concerns that NSSI doesn't stand alone as an independent diagnosis, that others would see it due to the high comorbidity with other conditions like eating disorders, personality disorders, depressive disorders, trauma disorders, and so on, that this is a symptom rather than than a standalone condition. So this is something that is, again, a transdiagnostic symptom as opposed to its own unique clinical diagnosis. And the research is kind of mixed on this front. There is certainly evidence that the proposed NSSI disorder criteria, it is different from BPD, that it does distinguish individuals with NSSI disorder from individuals with borderline personality disorder. However, One concern, and there was one study in particular that found that very few individuals meet criteria for NSSI disorder and nothing else, that most people who meet criteria for NSSI disorder also meet criteria for another disorder or another comorbidity, that individuals who meet criteria for this on its own is quite rare, which That can be a problem as far as identifying this as its own unique standalone construct. There's also individuals who will argue in regard to just separating non-suicidal self-interest behaviors and suicidal self-interest behaviors. Some argue that NSSI is more so on a dimension or continuum with suicide, and certainly there's those who argue against that as well. There's a lot of debate about that topic. Another concern with this disorder is just the fact that when it comes to what is considered self-injury or not, there is that culturally sanctioned element to it. And some critics of this diagnosis have argued that what we consider to be socially and culturally sanctioned or acceptable in terms of self-harm is constantly in flux, that things like body modification are seen as socially acceptable, while skin cutting is not. But if you even think back just a couple decades ago, some of the body modification that we see currently was not as socially sanctioned, right? And so the fact that that is kind of changing with the culture brings into question, okay, which behaviors would count towards the disorder and which would not? And if there's a social or value judgment to that, that can be somewhat problematic or potentially problematic. And even earlier, talking about the child and adolescent working group of the DSM, a lot of people that are adults self-injure. Mm-hmm. Some never self-injured when they were children and adolescents, so onset was yes. adult age. And actually, we have a whole podcast episode on that in season two. So I think, yeah, that's another pitfall mm-hmm. or challenge, I should say. So I know your thought process and your opinion related to the diagnosis has evolved over time, given your research, especially given your research and that of others over recent years. Can you talk about this evolution of your thinking? Sure. I'll first preface it by saying that it's my personal opinion and that doesn't really matter that much. 
But I think it's interesting because I think my feelings or thoughts about this disorder probably mirror other clinicians, researchers, and individuals with lived experience in that they've shifted and evolved over time. And to be honest, I don't really know where I stand exactly at the present moment. When I first learned about the idea of an NSSI disorder and I started studying it, I was very much in favor of it. I thought it made sense. Again, being someone who studies personality disorders, I was always disappointed by the fact that NSSI was only housed within the criteria of BPD when we also see, again, NSSI outside of BPD and again, vice versa. I liked the idea of it. And upon initial read of the criteria, I was like, these make sense. This looks good. My early research supported the criteria as doing a good job at kind of representing what we consider to be clinically significant NSSI. But the more I investigated it, the more I looked at each of the criteria with a fine tooth comb, the more I spoke with other experts, as, and also importantly, those with lived experience my opinions did start to shift, not necessarily in in saying that it shouldn't be a disorder, but just starting to question, well, there are some interesting points and critiques that are brought up about the disorder as it stands today. So one question that comes to mind goes back to what I was just talking about, about is this needed? Is this a behavior that stands alone as a unique diagnostic contract? Or is this something that we should conceptualize as a behavior that exists as a symptom of multiple disorders? Similarly, like, is it valid as its own standalone construct? Or you know, would it be better as something like a specifier? Certainly, regardless of a diagnosis, I think we need more accurate and diverse representation of NSSI in the DSM. But there are, again, some very valid critiques. And then also, by exploring and looking closely at some of the critiques and flaws of the current diagnostic criteria, I would say that if we were to adopt it, we would need some substantial or significant revision to those criteria, given some of the problems that we discussed prior to this. And in terms of just the pros and cons of it being a diagnosis, right, there are potential benefits of it, but there are also some potential downsides. And I'm very mindful of the impact that this disorder can have, especially for those with lived experience who are the stakeholders of this, and that I really do value their opinions and, again, the concerns that are raised. But I also say that when it comes to diagnosis, just to show my bias, I do tend to think of psychopathology and diagnoses more dimensionally rather than categorically. So I have mixed feelings about nearly every categorical diagnosis. So this is a lot of the concerns I have with NSSI disorder are not unique to NSSI disorder. For example, I'm very interested in exploring the utility of dimensional approaches to NSSI. I'm very interested in dimensional or alternative conceptualizations of psychopathology, such as the hierarchical taxonomy of psychopathology or high top and ways that NSSI can be included in that framework. And so I think my opinion hasn't shifted from like being all for it to all against it, but more so I think having a, a healthy degree of skepticism and just wanting to have the best representation of NSSI in the DSM, whatever that may be. And so I think going with wherever the research takes us is most important, even if that's not what we initially thought we would like. That's a great takeaway. 
yeah, just hearing your perspective. And real quick, categorical versus dimensional for those listening that may not have an understanding or a frame of reference for what you're saying. Can you, in layman's terms, briefly share that? Yeah. So categorical classification of psychopathology is what our current DSM is based upon. And every DSM edition from DSM-3 to our current edition of DSM-5 text revision is based off of a categorical model, or what we call a medical model, where we have individual diagnostic categories. And then with each of those categories, we have different disorders. And each of those disorders is represented by a series of criteria, such as the way we were describing today, where one has to meet a certain threshold of criteria in order to be diagnosed with the disorder. One of the issues with this categorical approach, one of the many issues, is that it's an all or nothing endeavor in that you either have the disorder or you don't have the disorder. From you know the perspective of abnormal psychology, you're either normal or abnormal, which that's not how things exist in nature, right? And so what it does is it views someone who has the disorder as being qualitatively different than normal in that, again, you either have the condition or you do not. While a dimensional approach doesn't necessarily view it that way where it's all or nothing, where rather than seeing it as yes or no, you're in the box or out of the box, it views psychopathology as being a spectrum of various symptoms. And so we're all somewhere on each of those dimensions. So for example, for major depression, we can have potentially a dimension for depressed mood, a dimension for anhedonia, a dimension for hopelessness, helplessness, and so on, and that people can fall anywhere along the lines of that. And so rather than viewing someone as qualitatively different than normal, a dimensional approach views someone as being quantitatively different than normal, that one has more of an extreme expression of a certain trait or symptom. And so this is more in line with what we tend to see in just nature when it comes to symptoms and behavior. It's, it's not like all of a sudden you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, and fine, then you have a disorder. Typically, there's a wide spectrum in between there, right? And so a dimensional approach could potentially be helpful when looking at non-suicidal self-injury. We can look at different dimensions of severity, for example, or different dimensions of frequency, number of methods, and things like that that from a clinical utility standpoint could be very useful in that it would provide a more ideographic or individual picture of what the client is actually experiencing. What are their symptoms and to what degree are each of these symptoms expressed? And so that can help from a clinical utility perspective in particular. Thank you for that explanation. Bringing everything together based on our conversation today about NSSI and the DSM, what would you recommend to parents? Yeah. So I think when it comes to NSSI disorder, I'll kind of echo what I've been saying about my own kind of journey with it is that the proposal of an NSSI disorder offers a unique opportunity to consider and learn about several aspects of NSSI. So much of what we discussed today, so how NSSI differs from things like borderline personality disorder, suicidal self-injury, and just getting a better understanding about functions of self-injury and treatment of self-injury, assessment of self-injury. And so by investigating and learning about non-suicidal self-injury disorder, this also opens the door and provides an opportunity to learn about NSSI more in general. 
again, learning about NSSI disorder can help develop a better understanding of NSSI overall. It could also be recommended to use this as an opportunity to start a dialogue with physicians and mental health professionals about NSSI disorder, you know, sharing your thoughts um, and experiences, hearing professional perspectives on the disorder, and potentially having conversations with children who self-injure about what they think about the potential of this becoming a disorder and what it would mean if it would become officially adopted in DSM, what would it mean if they were diagnosed with it. What would their thoughts, feelings, concerns, what would they consider to be potentially a benefit, a potential downside, and so on? I think ultimately, you know, research with individuals with lived experience note that the diagnosis could potentially provide validation, reduce stigma, increase understanding of NSSI. So regardless of whether or not this becomes a diagnosis, I think that could be the emphasis that whenever we're talking about self-injury, that we do it from a perspective that is very compassionate and empathic, and we could reduce stigma as much as we possibly can. It's interesting then suggesting or having parents consider asking their child's therapist or treating physician or psychiatrist their thoughts on an NSSI disorder. Yeah, I think having a dialogue can be very important, not only from the perspective of learning more about it from someone who's maybe knowledgeable about it. But as I've stated before, like learning more about it myself has caused me to think about it in different ways. And so hearing some of the thoughts and concerns from parents or individuals with lived experience that that can perhaps help the physician or mental health provider think about NSSI or NSSI disorder in a different way and you know consider different things when it comes to potentially diagnosing it or talking about it with clients. And so I think open dialogue along all professional lines and in the general population can be very helpful. That sounds like it could also be a very good research study, getting the parents' perspectives on an NSSI disorder for the DSM and maybe have them listen to this podcast episode or just hear a presentation on the pros and cons and all the different the nuances of each criterion, I think, and then hearing their perspective and what they believe, kind of like yours has evolved over time. I think mine has too. And yeah. I would wonder, yeah, from different perspectives of parents, it sounds like a neat research study. And speaking of research, based on our conversation today about NSSI and the DSM, what would you recommend to researchers, but also other professionals like clinicians, therapists, psychologists? Again, I would echo what I said before, again, that this proposal offers an opportunity to investigate NSSI more thoroughly and and learn about it, but also to stay informed with the proposed NSSI disorder criteria, knowing that this is a work in progress and there's constantly more and more research coming out. Educating yourself on this topic is helpful in so many different ways. For clinicians, I think at the very least, even if one doesn't believe that NSSI should be its own standalone diagnosis, this proposal should at least hopefully help clinicians to consider NSSI outside of the context of borderline personality disorder and suicide, and to hopefully consider more thoroughly assessing for NSSI and not to jump to conclusions diagnostically or in terms of treatment approach when someone does report self-injurious behavior. I think also considering and discussing the implications of receiving 
the diagnosis or the fact that this may potentially be a diagnosis with clients who engage in non-suicidal self-injury. Again, speaking with clients about their thoughts and opinions and experiences about the potential impact of the diagnosis and its implications can be really helpful. And for researchers, I think you know we need to continue empirically investigating NSSI disorder and its criteria, its validity, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So if you haven't already, please join us in those efforts. Get involved, whether it be through participating or conducting one's own research or sharing one's opinions and comments and thoughts about the proposal and or just NSSI disorder in general. And as far as getting involved with that, our next IEEE's conference meeting is going to be in Toronto in June. It's going to be Wednesday through Friday, June 26th, 27th, 28th, for those interested, for our Canadian listeners that might want to participate or attend the conference. A little plug there. (laughs) Uh, Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience? I think first noting that you know these are not mutually exclusive groups, right? They're mm-hmm. professionals and parents who can have lived experience. And so a lot of what I'll say here echoes what I said before, and that's, um, again, sharing one's thoughts and opinions about the disorder and what it would mean for you to be officially diagnosed with this disorder or what it would mean for it to be officially recognized is incredibly important. And advocating for yourself, I think that is incredibly important. And that ultimately, when it comes to diagnosis, if or should NSSI disorder become officially adopted, by knowing that diagnosis isn't everything, that if someone is diagnosed with a disorder, that that's not all-encompassing of who they are as a person or their identity, that a diagnosis is meant to be a useful clinical tool that can help us as far as treatment planning, helping with prognosis, helping with access to care and all of that, that there's more to a person beyond just diagnosis. And so certainly we are definitely interested in hearing your thoughts and opinions about this potential diagnosis. And so if there's opportunities to participate in research or again, share with physicians, mental health professionals, parents, whoever about this, I think that could be really helpful. I like that. Diagnosis can be given, but they can also be removed. Mm-hmm. Depression, it's not a lifelong diagnosis necessarily. I mean, we have depression, we can work through it, and then we no longer have depression. So the diagnosis is removed. So similar potentially for NSSI disorder, NSSI disorder intermission. But Dr. Lengel, at the end of the day, what do you think? Is this going to be a diagnosis in the DSM, like officially in the future, whether we have an opinion about if it should or not? I think um, we'll we'll wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. That's a safe response, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to walk us through. I know it's probably a very detailed podcast episode, but uh, I'm always really interested. I've always had this particular interest in the diagnostic criteria and how they obviously will need to change if it becomes an official diagnosis in the DSM. But to hear you on the front lines and you're doing the research and you're interviewing experts and people with lived experience who are experts in in their own right. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Langle, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful and would like to give back, 
please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to interact with us, we welcome you to respond to our questions and polls under each episode in Spotify. This podcast is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.